My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In this week's podcast, we examine the foundations of international economic law. I'm particularly interested in the political and normative questions that we ask when trying to regulate economic relations between nation states. So who should regulate them and how should they be regulated? I'm also interested in examining some of the assumptions, some of the theories that underpin the field. Now, of course, before we can delve too deeply into our study of international economic law, we're also going to consider some of the historical foundations, its starting point with the Second Great European War, the establishment of the United Nations, and the call then for greater international cooperation around the establishment of an integrated economic order. Now, uh, during that discussion, I'll point to some of the uh, challenges that emerged, particularly the competing ideologies that were at play and that ultimately gave rise to the Cold War. So some unfortunate souls are deciding that skipping the first lecture is a really good idea, which, happy for you, it is not. (laughs) Now, um, we're beginning with international economic law. Now, international economic law, I can say it, um, as much as I out myself as a bit of a dork, is my favorite topic to lecture. It's such an exciting field, and hopefully by the end of today's session, you will understand why. Now, with international economic law, it gives you opportunity to engage not just with the international system, the global system, the world as a whole, but it gives you opportunity to engage with particular components, facets, sections, elements within the international legal system. Now we include in there this filler, so think of a sandwich. We have international, we have law, and then we have economics in the middle. But really what we are studying is the international economic, the international legal system as a whole, with emphasis being placed on economic relations. Now the question then becomes, If emphasis is being placed on economic relations, which parts are we leaving out? Now, for those of you who have studied international law, either you're studying it now, you've studied it in the past, or hopefully you're at least listening to the podcasts that I've provided on international law, you come to understand that international law itself is in flux. It is a system that does have some hard and fast rules, but many of the aspects of international law themselves are, the word is dynamic. And by that we mean that they are changing. And so what we study in terms of international economic law today is different from the way we would have studied it just five years ago, and is likely to be different in five years, largely because the world itself is in this process of flux, and that is necessarily disrupting the legal system as a whole. Now, in international law, you've learned about subjects. And you know, and I often say this, imagine each one of you here was a nation state. And each one of you as a nation state is engaged in interactions, relations, transactions, exchanges with other nation states. 
And every time you engage in one of those activities, you are participating in international law. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're a state and you are a state also, and the two of you sign an agreement, well, that is a bilateral treaty. Then you include a third state in it, it becomes a multilateral treaty. Then you decide to include these three as well, and it becomes a regional treaty. Now, this is a treaty under international law that is binding upon all of these members. But it's not binding on everyone else. Why? Because they haven't assented to that international legal agreement. That is the nature of international law, that it is contingent on the voluntary consent of a state. These, then, are the subjects of international law, each one of these nation-states. Okay. But if nation-states are subjects of international law, then what are the implications for non-nation-states? Can a non-nation-state be a subject of international law? And the answer we know is yes. So Some of you are familiar with the United Nations. The United Nations is a subject of international law. It is an international institution. Is it an international institution relevant to international economic law? Yes, it is, and we'll find out why shortly. Okay, clear for the UN. My favorite question, Apple, Google. Are these subjects of international law? Some of you are nodding yes. Others are looking at me perplexed. And you're perplexed because the law itself is not so clear. We look at transnational corporations, and these are entities that are constituted under domestic law, but they are operating internationally. You could go as far as to say they are operating transnationally. They engage with international law as much as you or I do. Are they subjects of international law? Well, in determining subjecthood within international law, what we often look to are two elements, the rights and the responsibilities. What rights does a state have under international law and what responsibilities does it have? Well, if you go back to the treaty that I spoke to you about earlier, well, it's rather evident. The responsibilities and the rights are included in the document itself. So if I want to know what you committed to, all I need to do is to look to the agreement. So what does it mean to be a member of the EU? Very simple. You look at the Treaty of Lisbon, you look at the Treaty of Maastricht, there are a variety of other treaties that you consider and you know what your rights are, what your responsibilities are. But okay, where does Apple, where does Google fit in this? Which international treaty have they signed on to? And the answer is, well, none. Well, if they haven't signed into any treaty, then does this mean that they have neither obligations nor rights under international law? Well, somebody here might be familiar with international investment agreements and will note that international investment agreements provide protections to private actors. So now private actors have some rights that they can claim under international law. Okay, they have rights. But the responsibilities themselves, those are not so clear-cut. Because how would, and think of it logically, 
how would a state that is constructing an agreement with another state that is including in that agreement a series of protections for certain actors, could that state possibly create obligations for those actors if the actors themselves are not consenting to it? Now that's a tough one, so take a moment and think about it. So think of it this way. I write a will and I bequeath to you an award. I say, you will get my car. <laughs> I don't have a car, sorry. But <laughs> if I did, she gets the car. So now I die and she has a legitimate claim she can make because it is written in my will that she is owed my car. Now, I also included in there a caveat, so long as she pays my credit card bill. And the credit card company and says, hey, you owe us 27,000 pounds. Does she owe that money to the credit card company? What do you think? She'll owe it if she accepts her car as being. If she accepts it. Yeah. But if she doesn't, is she still owe the money? Is it possible for another person to create legal obligations for someone else? Of course not. But is it possible for another person to create legal rights, legal benefits? And the answer is invariably yes. So we can end up in this situation where we have nation states that are entreating with one another. They are creating protections for private actors protections that private actors are availing themselves of, but how do they go about creating obligations? Well, the obligations can be created, but those are created in domestic law. So then we end up with this disjuncture, the obligations in one regime of law, the protections in another. How do these two regimes interact? I'm introducing these ideas to you to impress upon you the importance of understanding the foundations of international law when studying international economic law. Notice what I mentioned. Subjects, bread and butter of international law. Treaties, bread and butter of international law. Customs are going to come up shortly bread and butter of international law. Territories, jurisdiction, sovereignty, all of that is essential in the study of international law and by extension essential to the understanding of international economic law. So to the extent that you yourself are not yet familiar with the foundations of international law, then I encourage you, I implore you, to do a little bit of background study. We only have nine weeks in this module of international economic law. That is 18 hours. It is impossible for me to dedicate any of that time to international law foundations other than the 15 minutes I just provided you now. But I will take for granted that you do understand those precepts of international law, hence why 
I pointed out to you in the preliminary package the importance of you listening at least to the podcast, studying then international law, and I encourage you to continue with that. Now, when studying international economic law, the normal way that it is taught, the normal way that it is studied, is as a field of economic regulation. We look at it and we say, the relations between nation states are being, the economic relations between nation states are being regulated under international law. And that is absolutely accurate. That is precisely what we are examining, a field of economic regulation. But that field of economic regulation is made up of a number of components. International trade. So think of the clothes that you're wearing now. Is anyone wearing anything here that was actually made in the UK? Probably not. Piece of trivia. How many jeans, pairs of jeans, are produced in the UK on a weekly basis? I know the answer because there's only one jean company in the UK still operating, and they're in Wales, and they produce 200 a week. And there are reasons for that, and we'll come to that shortly. So the jeans that you are wearing now, there's a 99.9% .9 chance that they were not produced here. But there's a pretty good chance that you bought them here. Well, that is an element of international trade law and has to do with goods. But international trade also deals with services as well. So some of you will have been traveling in other parts of Europe and you will have noticed a company by the name of G4S, a security company that operates not just in the UK, despite being a British company, it operates across the EU, it operates across the African continent, across the South American continent, and across the Asian continent. And they provide security services. And they are covered by the GATS, the General Agreement on the Trade in Services. So international economic law is concerned with trade. But international economic law, as I mentioned earlier, is also interested in investment. And investment is distinct from trade, and you'll be hard-pressed to find an international treaty, a sole, general, universal, absolute international treaty on investment. Instead, what you have to deal with are some 3,000 bilateral, multilateral agreements on trade. All of that, or sorry, on investment, all of that is part of international economic law. But then we also have monetary policy, intellectual property protections, environmental law. Is that an economic matter? Ooh. Well, if you start trading carbon, maybe it is. So there are so many aspects of our daily lives that are in fact regulated by international economic law. So now what I am stressing, what I'm impressing upon you, is that when you are studying international economic law, you are not simply studying law or economics. You are also studying political economy. You are also studying geography. You are also studying history and sociology and ecology, and the list goes on and on and on. That does not mean that you must be a jack of all trades or a janet of all trades, an expert in all of these fields. 
What it does mean is that you have to be aware of the implications and how the implications themselves are both cross and interdisciplinary. And so when we are examining this system of economic regulation, we ask questions such as, what should be regulated by international economic law? Should money be regulated by international economic law? What is one of the chants of the Brexiteers? We are taking back control of our money. It is a national treasure, our money. It should not be internationalized. Anyone here ever used a USD, an American dollar? Anyone here ever used a Euro? That both of those currencies are, by definition, internationalized. One is the reserve currency for the world, and the other is the common currency for a region. So what, in fact, should international law, economic law, regulate? Well, let me ask you another question then. Who should be drafting the laws? Should it be nation states? Should it be the UN? Should it be Apple and Google and other transnational corporations? What about the British Chamber of Commerce, a non-governmental organization? Or the International Chamber of Commerce, another non-governmental organization? Should they be involved in drafting international economic law? And I ask you this question as there are some international agreements that have been drafted wholly by private actors and then ultimately endorsed by nation states. What about you, members of the public? Should the public be involved in the making of international law? Well, you certainly think you should be involved in the making of domestic law, but if your lives are regulated not just by domestic law, but also by international law, since international law and domestic law, as I mentioned earlier, are now in conversation with one another, and in fact, much international law dictates what the nation state is permitted to do, does democracy demand that the public have a voice over international law? Well, one really leads to look at the catastrophe, the mess that is Brexit, to say, meh, maybe that's not such a great idea. But then what are the implications? Are we shifting away from a democracy and towards something else? Can democracy and international law coexist? Ah, maybe the UN, universal body, every nation state is there. So we'll now have democracy via the United Nations. The United Nations is the one that is going to construct international law. They are the ones who will develop it. That is the democratic choice. It makes sense. All nation states are members of the UN. They're bound by the UN Charter. They have both responsibilities and rights. That is the only universal democratic forum we have in the world. And if you believe in democracy, then you believe that law should be made by a global parliament. So what happens to Europe? Well, I imagine the first law that's passed are the same laws that Europe had imposed on Asia, Africa, and South America during the imperial period, which is, we're coming for you, and we're coming to take everything you've got. Why? Because Europe would be a minority. And so Europe is never going to allow a global democracy to take place simply because it is not in Europe's interest. That doesn't work. How many countries are there in the African continent? 53. How many are there in Europe? Well, in the EU, there are 28. You just lost the vote. Add that, the Asian countries, add the South American countries, and democracy disadvantages Europe. All right, 
Let's do it based upon population, because you know what? One state, one vote, not so fair, really. Vanuatu, population 25,000. China, population 1.3 billion. Maybe China should have greater votes. Let's do it one person, one vote. And as those who have taken international law with me know, that results then in China and India deciding international law. Not so comfortable with that either. So that brings me back to the question that I'm asking you, who decides international economic law? Is it nation states, non-governmental organizations, corporations? Is it all the subjects of international law because individuals are subjects of international law? No, it doesn't work. Okay, any international actor. Again, we are all international actors now. So when we're asking this question about international economic law, who should draft it? There are a variety of questions, a variety of answers that are possible. And of course, that brings me to the toughest question of them all. How should it be regulated? Which treaty should we adopt? Should it be a treaty in support of free trade, as the government is telling us on a daily basis, as virtually all governments tell us? Is that the type of law, of treaty, we should adopt? Should it be human rights? So we're going to provide protections to all individuals. All of them are going to have access to water. Does that have something to do with international economic law? Presumably so. And we'll come to that later in the term. Is that something then that should be protected, should be regulated by international economic law? Now many of you now are starting to feel Man, I should have taken family law. <laughs> what I'm pointing out is that international economic law actually covers everything. And that is a reality. And it's a reality that you need to be aware of. Why? Because ultimately what we are doing are making choices. And we are saying that this, everything in here, is covered by IEL. And everything beyond it is not. And we'll discuss this shortly. Everything else beyond it is social. It is political. It is theological, ecological. But it doesn't have anything to do with economics. And my point, and then we'll move on from this, is that the line, the circle, is arbitrary. A decision is made to place the circle there, just as a decision could be made to place the circle here. It could be made wider, more expansive, more inclusive, more restrictive, more narrow. So when studying international economic law, we do not just deal with the substance of it, what is included in the circle. That is relevant, and we'll spend much time on the treaties themselves, on the agreements, on the provisions, on the doctrines. We will spend a lot of time on what's inside. But what we will also consider is the reason the line was placed there. But not just the reason, the implications of fencing, of framing international economic law in this manner.